to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World, because that's the world that we live in. It's not a, a slam against it. It's just an observation. It's the way that it is. And if you're with us here this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and uh, just wave to them and they'll get one into your hands. If you don't own a Bible, please take that, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot, which was the prevailing sin, prostitution in, in Corinth? Certainly not, Paul said. Or do you not know that He who is joined to a harlot is one body with her, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, And you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. That's a heavy thing. For you were bought at a price. And therefore glorify God in your body. And in your spirit. Which are God's. Let's pray together. Thank you Lord for this passage. We thank you for your heart and your mind. And your love and your instruction. That is bound up in this passage. And we want you, Lord, to know that we are eager to hear anything you would say to us. We pray that you freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us a supernatural ability to hear your voice through your word. And, Lord, to hear your voice speak specifically to our lives. And we ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In the church of Corinth, all manner of sin had infiltrated the church from the pagan culture and the world that was all around it at the time, a world that is very much like our world today. Divisions were occurring within the church. People were dividing into different groups over who they felt was the best or the most popular of the leaders within the church. Today we talk about it as the cult of personality, which is alive and well not only in the pop culture that we live in, but also alive and well in spiritual circles as well. And they were, the church was divided into camps and people arguing and fighting over who they felt was the best at this and that. Sexual immorality was... Uh, strongly present within the church and rather than the leadership of the church uh, seeing it as something that was uh, dishonoring to the Lord and a danger to the body 
they uh, prided themselves in accommodating the sexual immorality and kind of showing the world, see, we're not so different from you. We're pretty broad-minded as well, and I think you'll like us if you come to church. And and, uh, this was the attitude towards sexual immorality. They were suing each other in courts of law. And some of them we're going to read later as we go through the letter. We're even getting drunk at the Lord's Supper while partaking of communion, absolutely bombed. You think about how appalling. You think about attending a church like that. I mean, it's, you, you go to church and it's just an extension of the culture, only they do some different kind of things. Who would want to belong to a church like that? And yet it's really instructive to us to realize that any local church can become that, that far away from what God intends it to be if we cease to take the Word of God seriously and cease to uh, treasure the as precious the influence of the Holy Spirit within our lives. And if we choose to elevate our own self-will, our own ideas, our own selfishness above God and the glory of God, and above his purposes for our lives. This is where it all ends up, is in a a church just like Corinth. And you look at the mess that the church was in, and you say, how in the world did they justify it? I mean, here you have the Bible, and then here you have their lives, and there's a gulf between the two that is miles wide. How did they work this through in their minds to think that this was okay? And not only okay, but something to brag in this new version of Christianity that they've come up with, a new friendlier version, a a less holy version, a less demanding version of Christianity. And how in the world did they work their way through all of this? And it appears that they were justifying their sinful behavior by adopting three kind of dominant sayings that were a part of the culture at that time, And they adopted them for themselves, and they began to protect their selfish life and their sin-filled life uh, through these sayings. And the first one of those sayings is found in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, as we examined last week. And then the second is found in verse 13, foods for the stomach and stomach for foods. And we'll give our attention to that this morning, as well as the third saying in verse 18, every sin that a man commits is outside the body. Now that second saying in verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, we look at that and it's an odd kind of saying, and so we ask ourselves, what in the world was meant by that? In the church at Corinth and these Christians, they rationalized their sin this way. They said, well, God has given us a body with a physical appetite for food. And so when we're hungry, We simply eat in order to satisfy our physical hunger for food, and God would not have given us a physical appetite for food if he didn't intend us to satisfy that appetite by eating. Well, that's as good as it goes. I mean, they're on solid ground up to there. But what they decided to do was carry the same reasoning over to sex, And so they rationalized that, hey, God has given us the sex drive, and so it must mean that we are free then to satisfy that sex drive. 
every time that it cries out for satisfaction and to satisfy it in any way that we choose. After all, God would not have given us a sex drive if he didn't intend for us to satisfy it. And so if God made our body with these drives or with these appetites, then it must be perfectly okay with him that we satisfy those drives and appetites. And if it's okay with him, then it's okay uh, for us to do. In our world, in our culture, we have a saying that's similar to what was used in the ancient world, and it came out of kind of the hippie movement in the 60s, but it's still around in force, if not used in the same way. It's uh, a very powerful uh, way of living that people uh, glom on to even to this day, and the saying is basically, if it feels good, then do it. And that's essentially what was was being said there in in the culture uh, of Corinth and is a part of our culture today. And the idea, again, is that if God made our bodies, then there's nothing wrong with simply following the desires of our bodies, and uh, God will be good with it. After all, he's the one that gave us these desires. Now, there's a glaring problem here. It's one thing for people that don't know the Lord or the Bible yet to be fooled by this kind of thinking, but it's, a, it's an altogether different thing for a Christian who knows something about the Bible to be fooled by that kind of thinking or to think that I can use that as a rationalization for sin. What that saying that was going around in Corinth and in this whole rationalization behind the, the saying, all of it fails to take into account the fact that our bodies are fallen from God's original intent. And so are our desires. So this idea that, hey, I have an appetite, God made me, I have an appetite for sex, drugs, rock and roll, you fill out the list. And God gave me that appetite, I still possess the appetites that were original with Adam and Eve in the garden, and these are the same appetites that I have in my own life, and and so... Uh, the, the, this whole idea of failing to take into account that our, our physical bodies and our appetites, they're well fallen below God's original intent. And that fall occurred uh, through the sin of Adam and Eve in that ancient garden of Eden. Our bodies and with them, our appetites, our emotions, our thinking, our everything about us, is fallen from God's original intent for man in the Garden of Eden. And everything about us is broken. So just because our body wants to do something doesn't make it right. And just because some, we feel something emotionally doesn't make it true. And just because we can rationalize something intellectually with our fallen minds doesn't mean we don't have a glaring blind spot in our thinking from the fall. And our rationalizations of sin, certainly, uh, intellectually with our fallen minds doesn't make sin right, and it doesn't make a sinful life right or true. And you can pull examples of this out in all throughout life. If something is right by virtue of having a strong natural desire to do it, then you, you and, and there's nothing wrong 
with doing it, because after all, we have this inclination, God made us, and so we're free to follow that and must be okay with God. You've got cl- you to clear out every prison and every jail in the land. Because so many of those crimes are done under the influence of some passion, of some appetite uh, within a person. And so if we're going to live that way, you can't prohibit any act of violence connected to temper. After all, my mind, my emotions, and my body were all united together in a great desire to punch that guy in the nose. And, and so it must be okay. Or for other people, you have their consuming kind of desire in life is alcohol or drunkenness and and uh, the, but the body's desire to be in a continual state of drunkenness doesn't make it right. Or if we determine that something is right by virtue of the fact that the body has a desire for it, then you couldn't call any sexual expression wrong. Not heterosexual, not homosexual, not having to do with children or having to do with anything. People are born into this world with all kinds of desires in their heart that come from their bodies and their minds and from their emotions. And so we could go on and on and on and illustrate this, the absurdity of anybody living on the basis of if it feels good, do it, or whatever my body wants to to do and has an urge to do, that that must come from God and he's okay if I... Uh, do that. Even the laws of the land, it's funny, people look and they say, well, you know, the Bible's account of the Garden of Eden, the fall of Adam and Eve, it's all mythology. I don't believe in any of it and, and all. Then why, but everything about the society that we're in speaks to the, the reality of the fact. Why do we have laws to govern our behavior if we are not fallen from an original condition? And if our behavior does not need modifying and restricting by virtue of law. Well, Paul's response to this popular saying begins in verse 13. He said, God will destroy them both. What's he talking about? Both food and the stomach. And what Paul is saying is this. Even though there's going to be food in heaven and there's going to be eating in heaven, it will not operate as it does now. In eternity, though we eat, we will not be affected by hunger. And in eternity, we will not be dependent upon food to sustain us as we're dependent upon food now. In other words, our main purpose, Paul is saying, and our main focus in life should not be food. One day those things are going to give way to the main purpose of life, and that is to serve God and to glorify the Lord. And Paul Paul goes on then to declare the same thing to be true of sexual immorality. It isn't something to engage in in life. It isn't something to make the focus of our life when we can live our lives for things that will outlive life and we can live our lives focused on the things that are going to be a part of eternity. Living for God, serving God. And notice when he writes in verse 14, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What he's trying to get these Corinthians to do, and us as well, 
is he's trying to get them to have a little bit of dignity related to their mind. He's trying to get them to be a little uh, heavenly-minded about their bodies and not so earthly-minded about their bodies to treat their bodies with the same dignity that God shows to our bodies. In other words, if God is going to transform our bodies into something suitable for eternity, suitable for heaven, then shouldn't we treat our bodies with a little respect now by not using them to engage in sexual immorality or in any sin? That is, our choices and our decisions in life should be not be determined by the appetites of our body, but they should be influenced and dominated by heaven and, and by God himself. Notice in verses 15 through 17, he then reminds them and us in response to this uh, saying that was going around that our bodies are members of Christ. We are members of the body of Christ. He'll talk about more of that a little bit later in the book, but he introduces the idea uh, here. So you have a body. You brought a body in here, didn't you? Your own, I hope, no other body. So you have a body, and your body has many members, doesn't it? You've got toes, you've got fingers, you've got hands, you've got feet, you've got legs, you've got arms, you've got a heart, you've got a liver, you've got lungs, you've got cells, you've got blood, you've got one body, but it has many, many members. And just as a human body has many members, all of these legs and arms and internal organs and eyes and ears, all the members making up one body that is directed by the head, Paul is saying so too. When we became a Christian, we became a part of the body of Christ worldwide. We became, you say, how in the world am I a part of the body of Christ? We are his hands and feet in the world. All of us is his people. When that person needs to be held because of a loss in their life, God sends a part of his body. Jesus sends a part of his body from his mind. He speaks to us. We go and we hold that person. We pray for that person. We comfort that person. Somebody else needs help moving something. Or somebody needs somebody to just listen to them. And God directs us then to listen to what a person has to say. We're the ears of Christ in that situation. We're members of his body. Somebody needs some encouragement to be spoken into their lives. We're members of the body of Christ. We're a part of Christ's body. He doesn't operate anymore through his physical body that he was here for his 33 and a half years during his incarnation. Now he does all the things that he thinks, all the things that he wants to do in people's lives, all the needs that he wants to do. He does those through us by way of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us as Christians. And so we become a part of the body of Christ when we became Christians. And Paul's point is to make us realize that as God's instruments and as God's representatives in the world to engage in prostitution, again, very dominant sin in Corinth or in any other uh, sin, is to then involve the body of Christ in that same sin as a result. It is to associate the body of Christ and Christ himself with that sin. 
and to realize that whatever we do as Christians, whatever we engage in as Christians, it doesn't just affect us. That was the problem with Corinth. It was all me, my, I. It was all about them. All they cared about themselves was no picture of, wait a second, I'm not just representing myself anymore as a Christian. I'm representing every other Christian in the world by how I live. And even more importantly, I am representing Christ in everything that I do. This was lost to them. They were so interested in their liberties and their sin and trying to be as as unspiritual as they could possibly be, experience as much of the world as they could possibly experience, and still get to heaven and trying to find that line in things. But everything we do affects Christ, and it affects every other Christian in the world. And that's a heavy thing to remember. That's a tremendous responsibility. It's a tremendous privilege, but it's a tremendous responsibility as well. And because this is true, he tells us in verse 18, we are to flee sexual immorality. We are to do whatever is necessary. The word flee there means not to flee one time. It means to continually flee. It becomes a characteristic of our life to flee anything that would draw us into sexual immorality. And the great illustration in the Bible, of course, is Joseph in the Old Testament who was sold into slavery and he ended up being bought by a, a, a Egyptian official, official by the name of Potiphar. And uh, Potiphar's wife took a liking to Joseph. The Bible says that Joseph was um, very, very attractive, both in uh, form and appearance. So he is, he is just a knockout, the guy was, in terms of his body, in terms of his face, everything. Super attractive young man. In the prime of his life, in the height of his sexual uh, you know, desires and that natural part of things. And so she looks at him and she wants to lie with him. And you can be sure she was a knockout too. So, you know, Potiphar's an official. I don't know if you've noticed that powerful men uh, tend to um, marry up in terms of appearances. He can look like a basset hound. And... You look at the galley god, you go, what in the world? She must really love power. (laughs) And some people do, and it works both ways as it relates to sex. And so she's really something. We also know that she's a bombshell because she grabs a hold of Joseph's cloak, pulls him down on her. He is so eager not to sin against his boss against Potiphar, but also not to sin against God, he sheds his robe and he runs out of the place. If she looked like Ma Kettle, he could have taken 20 minutes. Give me that cloak back. I'm not in any danger here at all sexually. Anyway, I could take two hours to get out of here and I'm not going to fall. He knew he was in trouble and he left everything he needed to leave behind to get out of there. And one of the things about sexual temptation is that the temptation's inside of us. And so once we walk into a situation where there is opportunity, and never in the history of our country is the opportunity to engage in sexual immorality been laid before us the way that it is today because the culture's become so promiscuous. 
And so a person walks into something where here is an opportunity to engage in sexual sin, and the problem is is that there's a there's an attractiveness, there's a desire related to sexual um, expression that's inside of us. And so what has to happen is I've got to get what's inside of here away from this as fast as I can, away from this environment. That's why when Jesus spoke in giving the Lord's Prayer to the disciples, one line in it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And one of the things that's being said in that is we're praying on a daily basis to God, God, do not allow the desire to sin and the opportunities to sin to overlap. Don't let those two things come together in my life today. And and yet when they do then, the instruction is to run or it is, it is to flee the temptation just like Joseph did. Now the third saying of the three uh, is in verse 18. Every sin, this was popular in the culture adopted by the church, every sin that a man does is outside of the body. And what this communicated and how some of the Christians in Corinth were using it as a justification for deliberate, willful uh, sin, even engaging in sexual sin. Uh, basically, the idea behind this saying was, well, there's the inside of me that is devoted to God. My heart, my mind, my inside, everything inside of me is completely devoted to God. And, and, and that relationship that I have with God, what goes on between me and God inside of me, it's completely unaffected by what, by what I do outwardly with my body. Now, this is known as, uh, is, is compartmentalization. It's the ultimate in compartmentalization. And the men are really, really good at compartmentalizing things and uh, better than uh, women at it where a person is able to take and say, I've got this area of my life. I'm going to leave it in this room right over here. And uh, it can be like a, a gigantic situation. And the guy can go over here to another part of his life and sit down and watch the 49ers. And this is over here and has nothing to do with while he's in here. And, uh, and so it is with all these different compartments. Women kind of like are running and through all the compartments all at the same time. They carry it all over one to the other. In general, though, women are getting better at compartmentalizing, at least as it relates to sin, in my experience, within, uh, within the culture. And so here the idea is, is that, hey, what I am inside between me and God, God knows I love him. God knows that how close I feel to him and his presence and all. And I'll tell you, I can engage in any of the sins of Corinth or any of the sins of this culture, and that never gets affected over here. And so how can any of this be wrong if this doesn't get affected over here? They're two entirely different things. Don't be talking to me about sin affecting my personal relationship with the Lord. They're two entirely different things. That's how the culture was dealing with with sin and wrongdoing. 
And people would engage in all kinds of things. And then, and rather than it becoming a shameful reflection on them, people would just look and say, yes, but he's a different person inside than how he conducts himself. So the culture was, was dealing with things that way. And the church at Corinth decided, let's spiritualize that and, and make it a part of, uh, a legitimization of our, uh, our sin as well. Now, I can't tell you how many people I've known and spoken to through the years who are have been actively engaged in sin as a Christian. I mean, pure rebellion to what God's word has to say. And typically they'll be involved in uh, sexual immorality or they will be um, pursuing an un- unbiblical divorce or it can be any number of, of things who, when you confront them then with their actions and with their sin, they'll say something like, you're telling me uh, that I'm wrong in what I'm doing, but I've never felt closer to God in my whole life. My devotional life has never been sweeter or closer or more intimate with God than it is now, never in my whole life. And they're compartmentalizing my relationship with God is this over here and what I am day in and day out in terms of how I use my body, those are two entirely different things. And I have no doubt in a room like this and this many people in the room that there's any number of people that are justify sin in that, that kind of, of a way because the culture encourages it. And uh, this idea that I'm this over here, I do this over here, but this is what I really am, and this is no reflection on what I really am. And what I do with my body, it doesn't affect my soul, it doesn't affect my relationship with God. Well, Paul's response to that thinking is very interesting, and he begins it at verse 18. He said, he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Sexual immorality is a sin against our own body, certainly in that it makes us vulnerable to sexually transmitted diseases and all manner of things. Paul's not really going down that path in in this discussion. When he says, he who commits sexual immorality sins against his whole body, the word in the Greek that's used for body there is not the word that is used to just refer to the physical body that you and I are inhabiting at the moment. The word that is used there, it speaks of what we are on the outside, the physical body, but also what we are on the inside. It's the physical body, but it's our heart, it's our mind, it's our emotions. Everything is uh, is affected by sexual immorality. It doesn't just uh, affect us physically. It affects us mentally, it affects us emotionally, it affects us on every level. I... um, think that uh, Pastor Ray Stedman, who is um, along with the Lord now, and uh, he pastored Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California, for so many years. And I think that his observations uh, on this are very, very helpful on this particular part of verse 18. He said, the Apostle Paul is telling us here that something happens when you indulge in sexual relationships that is far deeper than your feelings will ever recognize. He said, I have had men who live sexually promiscuous lives tell me 
that they never enter into even the most casual and passing uh, liaison in this way, but that when they meet the girl afterward, there's a change. There is a deep sense of having shared a mystery together. They cannot help but feel there has been an intimacy that can never be forgotten that has stamped them to some degree. And it's very, very true. And it's what Paul is speaking about here. Sexual sin is not just a sin against the physical body. It is a sin against the soul as well, against the mind, against the heart, against the emotions. There is no such thing as casual sex. It's to believe a lie, and God knows it. Today we talk about casual sex, talk about people hooking up, and people think they just hear and go, and it's just like dogs, and boom, and boom, and out, and gone, and done, and by, and that's all, and that's all there was to it was a physical act. God knows better. God knows better. The Creator knows better. Sex involves deep and powerful forces that God intends to be a part of the sexual relationship, but only to be expressed within the committed covenant of marriage. He responds further in verse 18 by saying, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Why are we at the temple of the Holy Spirit? We're the temple of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives inside of each and every one of us as Christians. He was given to us by the Father at the time of our conversion. The Holy Spirit, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit came into our lives. And he gives us power and he gives us comfort and he encourages us and he directs us. Unbelievable blessing and privilege to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. But with that privilege comes the responsibility of realizing that everywhere we go as Christians, we take the Holy Spirit with us into every circumstance, into every environment. And Paul is trying to speak to these carnal Christians and to try to get them to understand that the picture is bigger than themselves, but that by virtue of the fact that they are Christians, now everything they do involves God, and that, and that the consciousness of the fact that the Holy Spirit is in them, that reality was to govern their decision-making in life, and it's to govern ours as well. And to ask ourselves, will the Holy Spirit who is within me, will he then want to do this thing that I'm about to do? Will he want to participate in that? Will he then want to watch this television show or movie that I'm about to watch? Will he want to listen to this music that I'm listening to right now? Or will he want to be a part of this conversation that I'm finding myself in in the, uh, the, the middle of, or whatever it is that we find ourselves in. And if, we, if the answer, if we can't answer, yes, this is something that the Holy Spirit wants to be a part of and I want him to be a part of, then Paul says we're to refuse to do it. Under the law of hospitality, 
We invited the Holy Spirit into our lives when we became Christians. And in that Middle Eastern culture, to invite someone into your home, everything became secondary to the guests that you invited into the home. And on the basis, even only on the basis of hospitality, to live a life conscious of the fact that this one is in my home, Everything that happens in my home then affects him to then look at the situation and say, I want to be hospitable to this amazing guest in my life, the very person of the Holy Spirit. There's something to think about, really. And he goes on to say in verse 19, you are not your own. Wow. That's un-American. I'm not my own. I'm not my own. I am woman, hear me roar, and numbers too big to ignore. For those of you who remember Helen Reddy. And my body is my own. It's the pagan culture. And I can do anything I want with my body and do anything that is inside of my body. the same culture in Corinth. And God reminds them and he reminds us that we are not our own. And this goes completely against the self-dominated culture that we're in. And it is a wonderful truth to be able to say as a Christian, if I'm spiritual, to say my body is not my own anymore. I gave it to God, became a member of the body of Christ so that he can express himself through my body and bring glory to himself. And we aren't free to do whatever we want with our bodies and our eyes and our ears and our feet and our speech and our hands and our minds because they belong to God now. They are no longer mine. And why do they belong to God? Verse 20 for you are bought at a price. And here we're talking about Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins to make us free not only from the penalty of our sin, past, but from the power of sin present in our lives. Something that the carnal Christians in the church at Corinth really lacked an appreciation of. They wanted to know all about how Jesus died on the cross to forgive them of their past sins. But they did not want to be reminded of the fact that he also died on that cross to free us from the power of sin and from continuing to live a life of sin now that we are Christians. And then he says in verse 20, in light of this, therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit. And glorifying God in my body and in my spirit. And Paul is saying, don't give me this spirit and body thing over here. As if this can be dedicated to God and this can't, isn't dedicated to God. He says, body and spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit. 
And that's the only way to live a life, Paul is saying, that's consistent with Jesus' sacrifice. And I think that the Christian who's in awe of Calvary and thankful for their release from the bondage of sin, they're not going to spend the rest of their life fooling around with sin the way that Corinth was, trying to pick up slogans and trying to pick up pop psychology books or whatever it was or liberties or all these kind of things. A person who understands Calvary, what Christ did on the cross at Calvary, isn't going to spend their life living the way that these Corinthian uh, uh, Christians did. But they're going to desire instead to ask of ourselves, does this glorify God? Does this glorify God? Does this glorify God? And then if it doesn't, then that kind of Christian will take it and spend his time and his effort on something that does glorify God. You say, that's radical. Yes, it is. Wonderfully so. Powerfully so. Each of us in this room, in the overflow room, I'm delivering a sermon that I'm listening to as I deliver it. You're listening to a sermon as well. In the privacy of your own heart, between you and God, you know what your reaction to it is. For some people, the reaction is yes. I am so thankful that my sins have been forgiven, my past sins. I am so grateful for that, and I am also grateful for the fact that he has provided me the power to live a different kind of life that glorifies him, and I spend every waking hour in that kind of a Christianity. And then other of us can sit in a room like this and say, you know, I pretty much major on the fact that he's forgiven me of my sins past. But it's been a long time since I gave any serious thought to glorifying God for even a single day with my soul and with my body, let alone for weeks and for months and for years. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth is an exhortive epistle. It is a major, major pushback against the culture turning Christianity into something even in one person's life that's a million miles away from what Jesus died on the cross to provide to us. And the passage needs to search my life, and it does. And it needs to search our lives as Christians, all of our lives as Christians. We're blood-bought. An unbelievable, unspeakable, indescribable thing happened on Calvary that sacrifice of the Son of God for me to not only be forgiven of my sins past, but the power to be freed from the power of sin. They didn't take it seriously in Corinth. And I just want to ask in the privacy of our own heart, do you take it seriously? 
do I take that seriously? I say, I did when I was a brand new Christian for about 18 months or 12 years. But you know, that's been 10 years ago. And now I just live however I want. And all I think about is what a great forgiver he is. But what about God's glory through our lives? That's what's being lost today. That's what was lost in Corinth. The highest use of the human body is not eating food. It is not engaging in sexual immorality. The highest use of the human body and the greatest pleasure a person can experience in life is found in using our bodies and our spirits, what we are on the inside and on the outside, to bring glory to God. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For we were bought at a price, and therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. This section of Scripture, you could do a 10-week series on these verses to talk about the meat of what is in here, and I think you could do it, but probably destroy the passage. Paul comes in, and every one of these lines are spiritual dynamite. Kaboom, 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 kaboom. He's trying to break through the hardened hearts of these Corinthian Christians one after the other, to try and get them to understand what Christianity really is from the perspective of heaven and not what Christianity is being formed into in the insane asylum that is planet Earth from the time of Adam and Eve now, but especially so now. And because there's so much content in this passage and so much meat and so much significance, we need a few moments to think about it a little bit, to internalize it, to talk to God about it, to hear from God about it. And so this morning we want to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so if the men will come forward and the worship team will come forward, we will serve you the symbols of Jesus' body and of his blood.